Hello, welcome to Broken Shovel Homesteading for a Sustainable Future podcast. I am Lily, co-host and producer. I'm joined with Lucas. Hello. And Teresa. Hi. Hi, Teresa. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Today we have uh, Teresa Green um, of the uh, Vermont Historical Society. She is a collection manager. So, um, Teresa, just give us a little bit about yourself. Uh, So I am the collections manager at the Vermont Historical Society, which means that I'm in charge of all of the 3D objects. So any of the the antiques and all of the stuff and making sure that it is preserved for as long as physically possible so that we can use it to remember our history, tell our history, share, etc. Wow. wow. Uh, and, and what does that like entail? Like, I mean, are we talking like uh, declaration of independence, no oxygen kind of things here? <laughs> um to some extent, not quite as Hollywood as that. Um, <laughs> so uh, objects do have certain environmental conditions that they thrive under. All um, all things are ultimately slowly decaying and trying to destroy themselves. But you can slow that down by keeping everything between the temperatures of 65 and 68 degrees Fahrenheit and the humidity of 30% to 40%. So anywhere below that humidity, stuff like paper and textiles tend to dry out. And then once they get wet again, the uh, fibers, they puff back up and and then they split. And anything that is above that range in temperature and humidity, mildew and mold tend to set in. And um, those will eat through the materials as well. And then with furniture, you get swelling and shrinkage and the same with metal. So everything does a lot better when it's kept in a really controlled environment. And then it's also you can't touch things because your skin will eat them and you know, <laughs> all of that. So how big of a collection does the um, Vermont Historical Society have? So just talking objects, not archival and library. We have about 30,000 objects. Wow. And you have to maintain... Between the two locations? It's mostly in Barrie. Our gallery is in the pavilion building in in Montpelier, which, as you know, flooded a lot. But um, our storage is all in the old uh, Spalding High School in Barrie. And the reason for that is actually a previous flood, the um, 92 Montpelier flood. Our storage was all in the pavilion basement, which flooded. And while we didn't lose any objects because the previous collection manager happened to beat the flood a little bit and she got down there and passed everything upstairs, we did lose a few documents then. But that prompted our move to a school that is up on a hill outside of a flood zone. And um, we're really glad that we did. Yeah, yeah, didn't let, uh, no pun intended, history repeat itself. Um, yeah. That's, <laughs> so talking about the floods, I, I mean, so where, I, can you kind of tell us about your experience during that? You know, you and I kind of connected on Reddit really quickly, and then, you know, we haven't really spoken since, but um, I imagine that was fairly stressful evening for you. 
Yeah. Um, it. Because you said you had little this... little stuff at home, but nothing like what was what what work was demanding of you. Right. Yeah. It was it was stressful. I, I mean, ultimately, it could have been a lot worse, and a lot of other people and places had it a lot worse. Um, so how the day went down was I was at work for most of the day. My office is in the basement and, um, there was a little bit of water coming into my office floor and, um, we finally got the call that we should go home if we wanted to be able to make it home. And, um, at at about five o'clock, our assistant librarian texted me that we had a moisture sensor going off inside storage and she lives within walking distance. So she went and looked and as reported to me, what she saw was um, my office had a lot of flooding, uh, which I told her not to touch because my computer cords are on the floor. Um, And then we had some flooding in, in one of my rooms and then in the library archive room. And it sounded like a waterfall in the um, elevator shaft. Oh, geez. So, so we called kind of everyone to figure out what to do. One other person lived within walking distance and I tried to go, but I couldn't get into town. So over the phone, um, the person who was able to get there um, kind of walked through storage, gave, gave an idea of, of where was going to be the worst and where we weren't going to have to worry about and moved some of our really important things from that were stored on bottom shelves to other rooms. And uh, luckily, one of our protocols is that all of the bottom shelves are several inches above the ground. So ultimately, the water didn't reach any of our objects. So we didn't lose any objects to water damage. The only thing that is really worrying is the uh, humidity levels. It got up to 70%, which is above 40. And... um, and that's when, if there's any mildew on objects that have been brought into us from, say, it was stored in somebody's barn, at, at that humidity, it can reactivate, and then it can spread to other objects. So that's most of what we've been trying to control. And then with and the pavilion building, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I'll save my question until you're done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And and then with the pavilion with the pavilion building, the water line didn't reach our section, which is I think about half a story above the ground. It just flooded the the basement, which was is all state buildings. Okay, well, Lily had a question. So how do you so because the humidity is so high, how do you combat that and and clean the objects of the mildew that have accumulated after that increase in in humidity? We uh, first filled all the rooms with dehumidifiers. So that's become a big part of my daily routine. It's just emptying dehumidifiers over and over. (laughs) Um, And we sourced those from far afield so that we weren't stealing them from people who, who have more drastic issues. Um, our industrial-sized dehumidifier was sourced from a staff member's family in Maine, and they car-hopped it over here. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And um, mold and mildew will actually fluoresce under blacklight. So once it was safe to get back into the building, I've been going around with a blacklight and shining it on everything. To um, It'll glow kind of an orangey-yellow color. And, and then that can be treated, depending 
if it's on an object, it's harder because everything that you use that will kill mildew will destroy an object. So if it's on the floor, then we can wipe it down with bleach and keep track of it. And if it's on an object, what you have to do is isolate it. And this is the same for your collections at home. So isolate it either in a Ziploc bag or wrap it in plastic wrap. Um, a plastic drop cloth works great and make sure that's completely sealed and then put it in the freezer and that will drop the the temperature of the object down enough that the mildew goes dormant and then get a vacuum cleaner with low suction and a HEPA filter and vacuum all of the spores out and keep all that vacuum sealed until you get it outside and in the trash. Okay, wow. and, and you would you have to repeat this process, or is it kind of? I mean, I assume your equipment is slightly more sophisticated than us at home, or is this? No, it's actually um, museum equipment is is usually pretty similar. We um, we like freezers that get colder than home freezers, but your home freezer is fine because okay. um, it still gets it below that sixty five forty percent humidity, right. and the. Um, I think the biggest difference is our vacuum cleaner. It's still an at-home canister model. It's just that not a lot of people have those. And um, the reason that we do is because it has a setting with really low suction for okay. vacuuming your drapes. So that if you stick mm -hmm. it next to an antique textile, it pulls out the dust and the mildew, et cetera, but it doesn't pull in the actual object. So I've, I've just slightly unrelated. Um, you know, we, you talked about preservation of the, the fibers and stuff like that. How do you preserve uh, colors, um, you know, the fabric dyes, uh, like natural fabric dyes and things like that? Like, uh, obviously, they used a certain mordant and they're going to have, you know, be color fast to a certain degree. But uh, is there a, a further process to that? Um, the, so the process is to do absolutely nothing. The okay. best way to preserve a textile <laughs> is to put it in the dark in a temperature controlled environment and never get it out again, okay. um, which is not fun. And also not <laughs> what museums do because the whole reason that we are preserving things is to share them with people. Right. Um, so both the fibers and the dyes are light sensitive, not just UV light, but all visible ranges of light. So if you can see it, it's degrading. And um, we also don't wet clean any of our objects. If something needs to be wet cleaned, you have to test with, um, you use deionized water and put it on with a, a Q-tip and then blot it with a paper towel. And if any color comes off, then you can't wash it. Um, okay. and, and your skin oils will eat through it too. And there right. are a lot of colors where the dye itself eats through the fiber. So eventually it just eats itself no matter what you do. So like oh, early okay. black dye was made with rust and that'll yeah. eat through the fabric. Okay. We're, we make, we're, we're growing a lot of um, dye plants and stuff at home this year and oh, giving cool. this all a try and, and we do have a rust jar going uh, yeah. so, uh, to use as a, a board. So yeah, uh, it yeah, still lasts super... pretty long. It just won't be something that lasts for the end of time. Right. Yes. I, I wouldn't expect that. <laughs> oh, unless, we hand, unless we handed it over to you immediately, I suppose. But um, <laughs> uh, Lily, you've had other questions? So speaking of just like diet, sustainability and, and, and just kind of rolling off of that, do you yourself um, like have a farm or garden or 
grow plants that are can make dyes? <laughs> um, not dyes. I grow a lot of food plants, except not this year. It's been a very hard year for planting. Very hard year. <laughs> yeah. The the frost got most of my things except for my onions and potatoes. And then since I only had root things, the flood is there's kind of running. Yeah. Ugh, that's the worst. Yeah, yeah, it's really tough all over. Our other co-host, Eric, is is very frustrated. Um, we're, we're pretty well drained up here, so we're getting some stuff, but we're like a month behind in growth levels. It's it's very frustrating. Yeah. So, um, and then as far as, you know, the museum is concerned, concerned going forward, uh, is there more planning in in for for events like this, you know, uh, you know, because obviously we're a little biased. We we believe very strongly in climate change and an increase in these sort of weather events on our show. Uh, is a mitigation for flooding something that the the history society is is thinking about looking further into? Uh, obviously, they've prepared in the past, but is there more to be done? Yeah, we're um, in the process of of checking our building for why there was any water incursion. We're really pleased that the steps that we did take in the past really did work. Mm -hmm. um, I think in with climate change, our more pressing concern is, is HVAC systems that can keep up with the, with the changing climate. Uh, museums are very underfunded and HVAC systems are very expensive. And right. a lot of museums, ours included, are in legacy buildings uh, that are hard to heat and hard to keep cool. Um, so museums, just kind of as an entire industry, are really looking at um, whether we should still consider it best practice to keep these objects rigidly within this environment that we've set, or if we need to shift our thinking over to have an acceptable rate of loss of historical and antique objects um, in regards to what is happening with the environment and even how our HVAC and preservation techniques are contributing to global warming. Right. Yeah, well, I know. A, that's kind of a heart heartbreaking uh, uh, thing to think about. Yeah, it um, is. I know, especially in tropical environments, this is, it, this is also a, a huge um, fight is, is the fight against humidity and, and the rising heat temperatures. And I know a lot of museums are, are reaching out, um, especially to myself and, and my father, because we do a lot of research, um, especially with animal collection um, for donations to get HVAC systems. So how um, can us Vermonters help the uh, historical society? Well, the, the answer that is the most honest, I think, would be unrestricted monetary donations. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it, it doesn't feel as helpful as, as something like donating money for a specific project. But um, often the unrestricted gifts are the ones that get used for building maintenance and winterization and HVAC and keeping things running. The, the unsexy projects that nobody cares about, but are very, very important to the rest of what we do. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And obviously, you know, when, when the museum is open or is not open currently, right. Is that, that's still right. It's still but, currently closed. You know, so when 
when um you know when somebody is visiting and and you know making a donation or paying an entry fee or something does that contribute closely to uh maintenance oh, yeah. Or, okay yeah well that's so that's unrestricted so that goes to our general budget the only time that something is restricted is when you specify i want this to only go towards acquisitions or i want this to only go towards library um, otherwise it just goes into the general fund that's good. Okay. So getting out there when the museum opens uh, is, is just as helpful and important. It is, yeah. Uh, and we love seeing people. Yeah. When do you, do, is there any, uh, I don't want to put your feet to the fire, is there any anticipation <laughs> on, on it reopening? So I do not have an answer for that and uh, yeah. not even an inside answer. It's, um, it's, it's up to the week. state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the state owns the pavilion building and um they have to make sure that it's safe for everybody. Their electrical was in the basement, so I think that's what's taking so long. That makes sense. Yeah, but um, but we haven't been given any sort of timeline. All right. Well, uh, do you have any other questions, Lily? Um, don't. Um, I did notice that you guys are going to have the Berry Heritage Festival. So oh, that has been postponed. Super. The has been postponed. Okay. It is. Good to know. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so if you still want to come down to Barry that weekend, there is still um, a big push for volunteers. Oh, great. All right. Good to know. Well, yeah. That's really great right. to know. Um, and I think, yeah, you've answered all of my <laughs> questions. Lucas, do you have anything else? No, this has been awesome. It's been really great talking to you, Teresa. Um, yeah, you too. And- Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, and once again, we were joined by Teresa Green, Collections Manager at the Vermont History Society, uh, talking about the recent floods and uh, how to maintain a collection in climate change. Thanks again, we look Teresa. Forward, yeah, we thank look forward you. to the museum being open again and checking it out. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Me too.